Okay, Sandra. Carrie. Uh, we got a big, we got a big fish we're interviewing today. to me on stage during Rusalka. Um, I'm sorry, but you deserved it. <laughs> well, we will say that right now we are waiting for our guest to join us. So we yes, don't know sir. how this is all going to come out, good or bad. But we have some real questions for the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, Peter Gelb. Peter Gelb. Do, do, do. <laughs> that we want to hear your opinion and your side of the story because there just seems to be so much floating around not just in in the met but worldwide and there's just a lot of misinformation and i think all of us artists we just want to know what the truth is and what's really going on so i think we all like to know what the truth is <laughs> including me uh, but uh I mean, you know, I think we all have, we all have our our um, ideas of of what is right and wrong, and uh, I think that uh, I try to pursue my life and professionally as well as personally according to a a strict kind of code of conduct conduct of what is what I think is the right thing to do, and certainly I there are reasons behind it. I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I think it's a we're in a very tough place. My, I have, I have a very, I have a singular goal though, which is to get the Met through this crisis, mm -hmm. and um, I am determined to succeed in that endeavor, and I am, you know, uh, fixated on that. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Fine. I'm 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 good. I'm in Munich. I'm in Madrid. <laughs> well, they'll start with the letter M, so that's kind of yeah. Well, you know, no, I was just we were just talking about Munich, so uh, yeah, in in Madrid and singing. Well, that's cool. Um, I'm in the woods, uh, drinking whiskey and singing. So there you go. Well, that's very <laughs> good. Harry Alchemite. I don't know if you've ever met. No, I don't think we have. Hello. Uh, very very nice. nice to meet you. I'm, I apologize. I'm drinking water, but uh, it's okay. It's nine o'clock here, so I can I can. You can pretend it's vodka if you like. I, I, well, you know, it's okay, Peter. How are you doing? How are things? I mean. Well, you know, asking someone like hmm. me or any one of us how you're doing these days is a loaded question. So. I know. Truly. Getting by, managing, day to day. Doing my best. Yeah. But uh, we can talk about all that, whatever you like. How is Carrie Lynn? Carrie Lynn is fine, except that all her gigs keep getting canceled. Um, although she has, uh, she still has her debut at the Paris Opera uh, set, lined up for November. And uh, although she is receiving messages about caution, precautionary measures they're planning to take so far, that's still on. So hopefully, Hope she's conducting Car Carmen, Carmen there. Cool. I yeah. heard that Paris is just shutting down again. They shut down all the bars. But I don't know. Oh, we will say 
we will say a little prayer that she gets there because yeah. um, that's important for her. It really is. Carrie and I, this Carrie and I have both worked with her and she's an amazing, amazing musician person. So yeah. Oh, that's, that's very nice of you to say. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's the truth. It's, it's, it is. I had a really great time. We had fun. Great. Well, okay. We? Yes. I have a question. <laughs> so you do not do a lot of interviews. And I was really curious as to why you would agree to come on and do these shenanigans with the two of us. <laughs> well, well, you know, I haven't seen your show, so uh, oh. I don't. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. We'll see if I live to, live to regret it. Or... Are you Are you actually going to be like, oh, sorry, inter internet connection, gotta go? <laughs> yeah, but if if I disappear from the screen, you all know. Oh, okay. The, um, the uh, although I notice it happens every time. Every time I'm watching MSNBC, whenever they say something provocative about Trump, the screen freezes. So. Uh, Yes. Well, I, th I think, you know, it's Trump probably like with his finger, uh, you know, uh, and then freezing everything just so that all of that doesn't get out. But um, but I, I, I do interviews. I just, yeah. you know, I, uh, you know, I, I don't do that many interviews. It's not like I'm hiding myself uh, because I have a lot, you know, I, I have to in order to pursue the artistic and economic agenda that I that I must pursue for the Met. I have to be out there and, and speak about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you've had a tough year, like everybody, but I always feel like you, you general directors, it's a little tougher than it is for us in a way um, sometimes. And I know that um, you've had to make some huge, tough decisions, and some are widely unpopular, but some are widely supported. So we just wanted to know if we could ask you some questions. You're happy to see, say, I'm not answering that or whatever you, you want. You can ask me any question you like. Thank okay. you. Thank cool, you. thanks. Because I think that that we wanna hear your opinion and your side of the story because there just seems to be so much floating around, not just in, in the Met, but worldwide. And there's just a lot of misinformation. And I think <laughs> all of us artists, we just wanna know what the truth is and what's really going on. So, I think we all like to know what the truth is, but <laughs> including me. Uh, but uh, I mean, you know, I think we all have, we all have our our um, ideas of of what is right and wrong, and uh, I think that uh, I try to pursue my life and professionally as well as personally according to a a strict kind of code of conduct conduct of what is what I think is the right thing to do and. Certainly, I, there are reasons behind it. I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I think it's a we're in a very tough place. My, I have, I have a very, I have a singular goal though, which is to get the Met through this crisis, mm -hmm. and um, I am determined to succeed in that endeavor. And I am, you know, fixated on that. And I, but at the same, and at the same time, I to do that to achieve that, I can't be making only popular decisions because mm -hmm. uh, there's no way. Uh, that uh, the Met will survive if we just try to run it as a popularity contest. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, I don't think that works for on, <laughs> any business model, to be quite honest. So, you know, Peter, we're but, we're all on your side. You know, we want we want the Met to stay open. We want to keep course. coming back and making music there and having the audience participate. And we know that there's so much that's out of your hands, and I don't think people know exactly how much really 
is out of your hands in, in all the de decisions that well, you some, make? Well, some, some is and some isn't. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I have, uh, you know, I have a somewhat of a fatalistic uh, view towards things in the sense that I can't um, change certain uh, aspects of, of the way the nonprofit world works. Uh, but it doesn't stop me from trying and and certain things have to change in order for the Met to survive and I believe the Met will survive So do I and I'm happy to give you any gory details you like <laughs> Oh, I love the gory details. Let's do it. Well, what we wanted to do is kind of walk through I mean people there's so much about you out there about your childhood and your parents and and your movement up to Vodka, you're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the you know, you know once you know one of my one of my just to digress for a moment. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I used to be a documentary filmmaker, and I still am of sorts. But I uh, collaborated on many films with the Maisel brothers and with Susan Frumke. And one of the films that I'm most proud of was the film we made about Rostropovich and Galina Vishnevskaya returning from exile and reclaiming their world uh, in Russia after having been kicked out for 10 years have, mm -hmm. for having harbored uh, Solzhenitsyn. And the uh, keeping up with Rostopovich as we were filming him in the dead of winter uh, in Moscow was, was and, and then later on in, in what was still St. Petersburg, was an extraordinary, took extraordinary resilience on the part of the filmmakers because he was like a, uh, a, a dynamo who was so wound up and he would just never stop. And the very first night we got there, I was, uh, we, we sat down at this dinner in which he, had, he and his wife had reclaimed uh, the, uh, the apartment that they had lived in, which was given to them. It was, the, it was where the union of the composers had their residences. And he had a very privileged apartment, which he lived in with, uh, Vishnevskaya that had been confiscated by kind of the arch enemy of artists at the time in Russia, this guy named Krinikov, mm -hmm. who was Stalin's artistic henchman and who had lasted for 30 or 40 years and, uh, you know, had, had accused, had come up with all these famous accusations against Solzhenitsyn, against uh, Shostakovich, I should say, and other composers, uh, always accusing them of this mysterious word called formalism, which was of crime that a Soviet artist uh, was was could never kind of recover from. Nobody quite knew what it meant, but it was uh, it was very bad. And uh, so the the uh, day that Rostropovich and Galina triumphantly reemerged in uh, in Russia during Perestroika, with Gorbachev in power, the very first night after first visiting the grave of uh, of uh, his hero Shostakovich. Uh, he went to this apartment where all his friends who had stood loyally by him during these dark years gathered um, and presented him with poems and icons and and wow. he sat at the head of this table in his in this apartment he reclaimed with a with a half gallon jug of uh, Stolichnaya which he then proceeded to pour tumblers full of vodka the size of this and <laughs> and would make a toast and just down it completely uh, <laughs> and, and uh seemed no worse for the wear uh and uh and then the next morning i after uh 
what must have been an hour's sleep, he was off to the grave of Sakharov to uh, pay his respects there. Anyway, that was a great <laughs> lesson in, in uh, filmmaking and vodka drinking. But, uh, <laughs> Not vodka drinking, water. That has water looks stood, just like stood me well over the test of time. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, and you have uh, a why. I didn't even know that the show that I had fallen in love with was your son's um, until I was just so moved by the music in it. I thought uh, somebody, somebody has to know classical music to be pairing this type of music with this shot and this food. And, and um, I was actually on a show with Carrie Lynn when I discovered who it was. And of course I walk into rehearsal and I'm like, is this for real? <laughs> and she said, yes. So then he, he fell in love with, I read, sorry, I went down a rabbit hole of researching him and how that all came to be. And I found it really quite fascinating. Um, but the love of music and the education that you and your um, first wife, his mom, uh, you know, raised them with this music was so important. And then how that's translated into, and then now I'm hearing about your life with documentaries and how that all kind of, oh. you know, well, came I mean, together. It's super cool. It's always been a part of your life, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, not, I mean, not in a, in a formal way, but as a child, I, I came from a very cultured family. My, my father was a drama critic on the New York Times. Uh, my mother was a writer. My mother was the uh, niece of Yasha Heifetz, so, who was my great uncle. Cool. Um, and cool. Uh, I remember meeting Heifetz uh, when I was very young and him being quite mean to me, as I recall. Uh, no. <laughs> so he was, he was, uh, he was, he was, uh, performing uh, piano parlor tricks at a party that my grandmother, his sister was giving at her apartment on Park Avenue, in which he was playing the piano while holding a, uh, an orange in each hand. And, uh, and I remember going, shyly going up to him and asking him for his autograph, which he refused to give me. Um, so that was my- A relative and he wouldn't be. <laughs> my, 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 experience, my experience with Heifetz, who, who is not the nicest guy in the world, but uh, he certainly uh, uh, was an important uh, part of my growing up in the sense that I felt very much uh, connected to that kind of musical tradition. Okay. And years later, when I became the manager of Vladimir Horowitz, um, uh, the fact that Heifetz, the fact that I was related to Heifetz uh, uh, sort of was like the past that got me in the door there. I mean, they, they even, even though Horowitz had uh, it, it ultimately uh, 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 unfriended Heifetz, uh, and they had, uh, you know, they had, uh, like everybody, like everyone who Horowitz came into contact with, uh, ultimately became his enemy. Uh, there are very few people who stayed his friends. Um, uh, <laughs> well, but I, I he, guess I shouldn't ask what kind of person he was then. <laughs> no, he, well, between him and his wife, it was quite a dynamic uh, uh, and, and tempestuous couple. Uh, I actually liked Horowitz very much. Mm. The the um, uh, but he but but the fact that I was a was a was a a, 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 a relation of Heifetz was uh, stood me in, you know well with them with with nice. him and his wife. Well, uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to your your son's show uh, Chef's Table because it's beautifully shot. It's the stories are beautiful. The music is gorgeous, and um, I, I was so happy that I. Had discovered it, un, you know, not knowing what the whole connection was. So, anyway, awesome. well, thank you, thank you for saying. It. I'm very proud of my son. I uh, bet he, he's a, a brilliant uh, man, and uh, he, uh, um, 
and his wife, who's, who's a very gifted uh, agent uh, in, in Hollywood. Uh, the two of them live out in LA. And nice. one, of the, one of the saddest parts of, of my relationship with my son at, and, uh, and his wife, my daughter-in-law at the moment, is that my, my first grandson, uh, Elliot, uh, I have not seen in person other than FaceTime calls mm -hmm. since February. So oh. it's very, you know, it's, that's the difficulty of living in COVID and being yeah. bi-coastal. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but he's a terrific young, young child. Yeah. And uh, my other son, who's also a talented uh, mm -hmm. person in film, who's a film editor, uh, uh, also lives in LA with his wife. So. Okay. But got to start in Toronto, right? He, uh, well, both of them actually had, had times uh, stints in Toronto, apprenticing for uh, Neve Fitchman, who's a very close friend of mine, who's the Canadian filmmaker. Cool. Uh, and, <laughs> and in fact, uh, Matthew's, uh, my younger son, Matthew's wife, Dania, is the daughter of Larry Weinstein, who's a very accomplished Canadian filmmaker oh. and who used to be partners with Neve. So it's all, we're all connected. Oh, wow. Love it. That's super cool. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Let's get to the nitty gritty. We, okay. What we thought was maybe you can walk us through sort of a timeline from when COVID started, the whole pandemic started and the whole shutdown and maybe talk from from that forward so from the shutting of the met to the future of opera through that and you know give us some insight like for instance let's start with whose decision was it to close the met and how did that decision come about right well <clears throat> the i mean like many decisions that have taken place during covid uh with hindsight they seem completely inevitable and unavoidable. Uh, in the case of uh, closing the Met, it, it was becoming increasingly obvious as we got into early March that there was a major health risk for our performers and for the audience. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to say, you know, the governor uh, of New York has handled this, I think, quite brilliantly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, closing things down is a big decision. And uh, it was really under pressure. I shouldn't say under pressure, that would be the wrong way to say it. But, but we made the decision, I made the decision uh, in consultation, of course, with the leadership of the board of the Met and my senior staff. But I told them we had to shut down. And, uh, and they said, well, should we shut down tomorrow? And I said, no, we're gonna shut down right now, today. And uh, we sent a message to the governor's office saying we were shutting down. Simultaneously, we knew that Car Clive Gillinson was making the same decision at Carnegie Hall. And, uh, and Deborah Border was making the same, same decision at the Philharmonic. We were in close touch with each other. But we actually led the way in the sense that we told the governor and the mayor's office that we had to shut down. That this was, and, and later that afternoon, the governor, and we were very careful to, you know, to let them know we were doing it. Uh, but Later that afternoon, the governor announced that everyone had to shut down. I mean, all the performing arts. So, so uh, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that we had an impact in that decision, but we certainly were the first to do it. And I believe, um, I remember one of our, I hadn't thought of it this way, but one of our stage managers sent me a note a couple of weeks later saying that, you know, your decision may be the first decision by a general manager that might have saved a few lives. Uh, I, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms at all, but I, but I, but it's true. I mean, you know, if you look at what how this country has mismanaged this entire affair, and how many lives could have been saved right. if proper action had been taken at the right time, and it still isn't being taken to to this day, 
um, you know, we have a sense of people who are in a position of authority who can control things have, uh, have to exercise their authority responsibly. So the decision to shut down was the right decision, there's no question, and yes. uh, we had to do it. The, um, and the decision, the, I know you wanted me to take you chronologically, but I'll just go, no, to, the most, I'll go to the most recent decision, which was uh, the decision to, to cancel the entire season. Also, clearly, uh, there's, there was no choice. I mean, you know, we're in a state, New York is, is after having been the epicenter of the, of the pandemic in the United States, has now, thank God, in recent uh, months, uh, proven through great diligence to be one of the most uh, uh, safer or one of the safer parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, but it intends to stay that way. And, you know, the governor and the mayor have made it very clear they're not going to permit any assemblies, assemblies of more than 50 people. Um, so, and that's going to carry on, you know, far into the future. You know, it's the governor and the mayor's office don't like to make long-term proclamation, you know, negative um, pronouncements because it's bad for the, excuse me, bad for the, uh, uh, for the PR image of the, of the, of the state and the city. But we can't, you know, operate purely on the basis of, of uh, false hope we have to operate on the basis of reality. So, the, you know, we knew we had to shut down. We knew the credibility of the Met uh, is such that uh, everyone knows or everyone who knows anything about opera knows it's not, a, it's, it's not something you just open the front door and, you know, turn the key and it starts working. Here you go. It, it yeah. takes, it takes uh, months, several months. So even though back in May, when we made the decision to, that we would open on December 31, that seemed potentially credible back then. It certainly was no longer credible in, in recent weeks and months. And what we were waiting for, and why we didn't announce it even earlier, was the, was the ability to put together in great detail the 21-22 season so that we could simultaneously announce that 21-22 season and provide some hope of, and uh, you know some some light light at the end of the tunnel for the um, ticket buyers and donors who support the Met so so loyally. We wanted to show them that there will be a Met and 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 something palpable in terms of programming that also I'd like to talk about a little bit if we if you want to. Um, Absolutely. So I think it really reflects uh, the programming we announced for um, 2122 uh, is part as you know both of you know you know we plan far in advance but but uh, we also Manage to change things when we have to, or want to, um, and we met, we made some some adjust adjustments to that twenty one twenty two season, that really makes it a season of great artistic and social responsibility for opera to be meaningful to the public. We have to, it has to it has to reflect the life in which we live, and it has to it has to um, provide um, some kind of. Uh, um, um, aspirational um, uh, abilities for the for 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 the performers and for the public, um, and to so so we thought it was really important to take the production of uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which I, I had already commissioned um, with Unique uh, Nisesh again. I should you know I haven't even mentioned Unique. I should mention him very very much because he. 
is my artistic partner in these in these yes. decision in, the, in these artistic programming decisions. Uh, he's very much with me. It's, I, you know, he he is now the music director. Has been now. This will be his. This this would have been his third season if it was on an accelerated timeline. Already the third season. Well, because we we speeded it up, you know, because we yeah. had a big we had a big gap, uh, right. as you know. So, um, and this would have been the season. Actually, this season that we've canceled would have been the season where he really would have taken the reins in terms of the number of operas he was going to conduct. It was going to be okay. six um, up until up until now. He didn't have the t time in his schedule to do more than three. Um, so, uh, some of the planning for next year for 21-22 had already been in the works at the time that we were that unique was uh naming his uh we're, we're taking taking charge as music director and some of it was not and a, a lot you know he's certainly very much responsible for a lot of the uh selection of conductors the fact that we have five female conductors uh, conducting this year is very much uh his strong influence and his ideas um, the fact that uh, we have uh, uh, such an emphasis on contemporary opera is very much a joint uh, uh, policy of the two of us. I mean, something that, you know, some of these commissions take years to, to uh, develop and to, to gestate. And certainly um, in this season of 21-22, we have th these three contemporary operas that will be getting their premieres that season, met premieres. Uh, is the first is the largest number of, of new operas to get met premieres in one season since 1928, uh, wow. which uh, is an indication of several things. It's an indication of how our audience is changing because we we don't shove things down the audience's throat. That's not a good way to be a general manager. I, I've found, and when I've tried, it hasn't worked. Uh, um, and uh, um, we, but we also are can I think very, um, uh, with, with a sense of great self-assurance, program three contemporary operas, knowing that the audience is changing and knowing that, that there is an audience for contemporary operas proven by last season's great success of Akhenaten and Porgy right. and Bess. Right, right. And, the, and it also is evidence of the fact that there are so many great young composers out there right now, young and not so young, but composers who are creating magnificent new work that is, that is written for the audience, not, not, uh, it's written for success. And uh, certainly Matt O'Coin's uh, Eurydice, which uh, we commissioned uh, together with LA and, and then set up in LA first, um, with, which had considerable success last fall, uh, which will be in the 21-22 season, is a, is a remarkably uh, uh, fresh and vibrant opera that actually is original and, and actually memorable. You can, Remember the tunes, which is unusual yeah. <laughs> for a modern piece. Uh, Fire shut up in my bones. As I said, I heard. Uh, well, maybe I didn't say it, but I heard it at his premiere in in St. Louis, and immediately asked Terence Blanchard if he would expand the piece. It was originally going to be done at the Met in '23. This okay. is the big change. We moved it up two years. Okay. Uh, Terence, because a lot of his, he's a very successful film score composer, won an Academy Award for Black Can mm -hmm. Black. Klansman. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, because the movie uh, production schedule has been interrupted by COVID, has free time, fortunately, this year to do the additional writing that we asked him to do to expand mm -hmm. the piece somewhat for the Met. Mm -hmm. um, and so we moved 
so the big decision was moving that not only into the 21-22 season, but to the very opening night of the season, because we wanted to make a statement with that. Right. Um, and then, and then Brett Dean's Hamlet uh, was something, a piece that I heard in Glyndebourne three or four seasons ago. It was a big popular success in Glyndebourne. I loved it and <clears throat> felt uh, the Met audience would love it too. So there we have three contemporary Good. operas. And, uh, it's, it's time. Uh, it's time that, right. that the world, and, and especially New York City, I think, gets, gets some of these new works because, I mean, honestly, I don't want to see another Love OM again. You know, <laughs> but we also, but we also, but we also, well, I, I, I like a lot of them, but uh, we, but, but we also have, you know, new productions. Uh, David McVicker's done this fantastic new production of, uh, which well, I should say fantastic. We haven't seen it yet, but uh, the models are fantastic. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, we're doing it in French for the first time in Met history first, but it's a, it's a, I asked him and Unique asked him if he could create kind of a reversible Don Carlos that could become Don Carlo. Um, and uh, so, so one season we're doing it as Don Carlos, and then doing the in the Italian version uh, a year or two later. And we also have new productions of Rigoletto from Bart Shear, uh, with Piotr Becciwa uh, singing the Duke. Uh, and uh, we have a terrific um, and, and Quinn Kelsey, our, our rising young, brilliant American Verdi baritone from Hawaii, singing the title role. And uh, yeah. Rosa Fiolo's a great Italian young soprano singing Gilda, mm -hmm. and also we have um, uh, a new Lucia from Simon Stone, the director, um, who is uh, one of the more interesting, most interesting uh, directors around, who has not done an opera in New York yet, but several plays that have been very uh, uh, extraordinary. And Great. Uh, that stars uh, Nadine Sierra and Javier Camarena. So the, the um, and then we have a lot of other revivals and of course, uh, uh, you're going to be, you'll be there, Sandra, and, <laughs> which, we, which, I, which I'm very excited about. Time to come back. Yay. Yeah. I'm so happy about that. And, and also about all of our future plans with you. Oh, but, I know. We can't, we can't spell those beans quite yet, but. But, uh, but, but, but I didn't give you, so, so the thing is, so, so I gave you the beginning of COVID and the most recent update of COVID in between has been, you know, this ongoing nightmare of. Uh, how do you deal with a company? How do you explain a company that can't, that is out of work? Um, you know, I know there's great uh, concern, anger, uh, bitterness um, about the fact that we have not paid a lot of people while, while this crisis has gone on. Mm -hmm. um, I understand it, but quite frankly, it's a matter of survival. Um, for the Met to be able to weather this storm uh, it was necessary to, um, you know, we're not, some of the, some of the um, orchestras in this country have continued to pay their musicians during the crisis, mm -hmm. but they were helped enormously by the government, which we weren't. They received PPP, you know, this uh, part of the last stimulus bill was uh, payroll protection plan money, uh, which were uh, nonprofits of, of 500 people or less were eligible. So the New York Philharmonic, for example, was eligible. We, with 3,000 employees, were not eligible. Too you know, large. We, we were too large. I mean, it's really unfair, but that's the way it is. Um, we, and we hired lobbyists. You know, we, we have federal, state, local lobbyists who are working to, to try to win uh, 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 protection money for our employees. And there's always a chance that the next stimulus bill might have it. But the uh, it's not... 
you know, we just could not afford literally to pay everyone wages while we're not performing. It's just, it's, uh, it's just, and, and in fact, the contracts are designed that way to, well, to is this the force majeure con clause that we're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, force majeure, of course, I guess well, nobody was, when they, when those force majeure clauses were designed, nobody was thinking they would last for a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, if, if, if they weren't there and if we were paying everyone, we would be out of business right now. So the question is, you know, as painful as it is, I mean, I tried to set an example by not taking a salary starting at the end of March. Um, and all the senior staff took big salary cuts. And we, and we also laid off or furloughed, I should say, laid off is the wrong word because they're mm -hmm. coming back, uh, furloughed a, a percentage of the administrative staff. The administrative staff that is still working are those people who are keeping the Met going. Uh, it's, it's the media team that's been running this highly successful operation of, of getting um, uh, our nightly streams out into the world and which has had enormously positive effects on, on the Met's relationship with the larger public um, and the marketing department that has to get the messaging out. And of course, a development office, which has to raise all this money. Uh, and so those are the essential and, and the production and, uh, and artistic departments that have to plan these various different scenarios for long range right. planning. Without them, you know, we wouldn't be able to function. So we have a skeletal crew uh, inside the Met itself, uh, cleaners and- um, Physically uh, inside the building. Physically, cleaners, okay. engineers. I mean, and we were paying them, you know, sort of uh, 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 extra, extra uh, uh, pay for, for, for taking the okay. risk of being, of being yeah. in the Met. Um, to keep the Met going. We have a skeletal stage crew that's been coming in to, to run the stage machinery to make sure it's, it's operational. Uh, of course, we kept paying the uh, health care of the musicians and the, and the chorus during this, and we've committed to paying them that throughout the entire uh, uh, closure. Um, any, we have, any, sorry. sorry, we have two questions, just to, yeah. to kind of go back. Um, so do you now see are contracts going to be changed in the future with that force majeure clause? Because how can we keep that, that clause in our contracts going forward? I mean, force majeure, okay, the pandemic is going. What if it goes on for five years, Peter? Well, if it goes on for five years, you won't have to worry about it uh, at all because <laughs> there, will, there, will, there will be no future contracts or no, or no opera companies. Yeah, I mean, I you these are these are tough questions i mean my my concern though right now and i'm sure you can under, understand my perspective i hope is how do i get this company back how do how do we start performing again how do how do we find a way forward that can um keep the artists uh particularly you know i mean sandra you, you know you and 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 the great soloists of the met certainly i mean what would opera be without you you know you guys are you guys are the stars and and it's what the and it's what the audience pays money to come and see and hear um but you know fortunately or or for better or for worse you're part-time employees of the met and sure. and you know you have you know as much as we want you to think of the met as your home company um, you obviously have other you know you have a lot of other home companies mm -hmm. um the people who really are are hurt in this the most are the people whose full-time jobs are working for the met 
the orchestra and the chorus and the stagehands and the people who really, their entire livelihood depends upon, upon getting a paycheck from the Met. And those are the people who I feel very badly about the most because they have not been receiving money from us. Um, and that's why now that we're facing such a long term, when this began, nobody expected it would knock out an entire extra season. We thought, you know, it would, it would knock out the spring and maybe the summer and uh, we'd come back uh, at some point. And now we know we're not coming back, at least for a year. And now that we know that, I'm trying to find a way forward with, the, with those full-time members of the company so that they can have some kind of uh, financial benefits uh, going forward. I won't go into all the details because we have to negotiate. The union them. deals like... Is, are these issues with the unions that well it's all yeah it's all driven by by the unions and and the members of the unions who are who are the employees of the met uh for whom we would like to find a way forward where they can um receive some form of compensation in the months ahead where they haven't been previously uh but also to take on the burden of the collective responsibility that is necessary for the future of the Met. Because what happens is even when we, when we return, the audience is not going to return the same day. You know, the audience is going to come back slowly over a period of, of one or two or three years. So we need, we need, and the Met, or even before this pandemic was in not very strong financial situation. So we need 69% average, wasn't it last season? Well, it was creeping up the box office, but you know, even if we were a hundred percent, um, we still have to raise, you know, 100% box office would result in, in, a, in about $120 million um, or 100, you know, somewhere around $120 million in revenue. Our annual costs are $300 million. Right. So, so even when the house is sold out, we're losing a lot of money. And there's no um, government funding, unlike here in Europe. There's it's a completely in, different in, infinitesimal family. amount of government funding. It's less than half of 1% between city, state and federal funding. So the, um, but we, so we need, you know, we need to, I feel very strongly that the, for the Met to be sustainable, to have a future, we need to come back artistically more powerful than ever. Uh, you can't, where we don't want to cut is on the artistic uh, uh, presentations, because that is what gives us an audience. That's what gives us donations. What we have to cut is on our labor costs, which represent two thirds of the costs of the Met. So we have to find a way forward that, that uh, has a less costly company, but not, but not less productive. So that's, that's a challenge. But 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 it is it is it is the way forward that if people understand um, that if, if people get it then then they will understand that this is a way that we can guarantee their jobs um, and you know it's it's uh, it's you know it's it's very difficult in in the way the history of labor and unions in this country is is quite complicated and. Unions were formed for a reason, a very good reason, which was to protect workers and to give them rights and to give them uh, uh, power uh, when at a time when unions were formed, when power was needed. But like everything, you know, there, you have to balance shifts in power have to change, occur from time to time. And the, um, you know, the, 
the when I first came to the Met, I was taken by one of the union leaders who said to me when I was explaining the economic disparity of the Met and how difficult it is for the Met to function and rely so much on donations. And, and this union leader very patiently said to me, you know, your employees will know you're telling the truth about this when you go out of business. And I uh, said to him that that's not something we want to wait for. You know, that's, that's a terrible attitude. <laughs> that's it. And, um, but that's sort of how things have evolved over decades and decades of management union uh, yeah. uh, relations. And Our soloist, our union that we're, Carrie and I, we talk about the Agma soloist union a lot because right. we, like it has let us down. Um, it's not really representing us, the soloists, as as well as all the the chorus and all of that equally and it's it's i know it's a slippery slope and one i think now that that people are very passionate about because of the pandemic and because of the lack of work of all of us and we keep paying dues for nothing and you're right it is in a way it's an abuse of power that we that we feel am i correct carrie in, in what i'm saying about agma yeah, I mean, with with the release of paperwork that should have never, I guess, seen the light of day, and it was in black and white right there that we don't really, you know, excuse my French, give a shit about the soloists. It was, you know, everybody thought, well, why are we even paying dues in the first place if you, we are not part of the importance like the chorus is? So, and we've all over the years have seen all of our things that would benefit us go away slowly but surely. We're taken off the table. Um, that's a whole nother discussion. I There's a couple things throughout this conversation, if you don't mind, that I, I feel a real huge responsibility to ask you um, from opinions of chorus members and orchestra members, because they, and this is where, what ties into the union, is that when the concert happened in April or the concerts that are happening yeah. you know, like with Sandra, et cetera, what, how did the how was the decision made not to use chorus members, not to use the Metropolitan Orchestra members? Was that a conflict with the union? And if so, why couldn't there be some kind of a collective agreement that could help everyone at the table? And some concessions were made just for this specific time period so that some people could have money put in their coffers um, and that the Met really did look like a unified family because everyone was being used in some shape or form if you don't mind answering that no sure the uh first of all i just, I just want to go back to your your uh, your comments your, your and Sandra comments about agma you know <laughs> i i uh, i don't want to get in the middle of that one no. uh but Not MF. Not MF. <laughs> so so uh i just um would like to say that you know um you certainly when it comes to individual artists who have contracts at the met um, I understand they're part of the AGMA agreement, but we do negotiate separately with the artists uh, for, for their contracts. You know, the, 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 there's, I think there's a lot of misinformation flowing around these activities that the Met took, have, has been undertaking. And the, um, first of all, the at-home gala was, you know, like everything, you know, you start, you do things with the best of intentions and uh, uh, somebody's always unhappy. The, the at-home gala was done in April. Uh, and I think the timing of it's important because it was it was a month or so after things had shut down, and we had asked the orchestra and the chorus 
if they would like to participate in this. Nobody was paid anything for that for that event. It was it was a it was a it was meant to be a an event, and it worked, I think, very successfully. It was meant to be an event to to connect uh, opera singers who were who were stuck in their in their in their various lockdowns and um, and the public who was you know didn't know what had hit them. Nobody knew what had hit them. And we still don't know what it is, but, but uh, at the time it was, it was an event meant to engender goodwill uh, for everyone. And the, nobody was paid. Um, the, uh, the whole thing was done for, on a production budget. I think, I think it was like $80,000. It was all done by Skype. Uh, and uh, and $80,000 may sound like a lot of money, but that's like nothing, you know, compared to, you know, a typical HD, live and HD show costs like about $1.3 million. So um, it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a real home, homegrown, homespun event. And um, the, the, um, and it helped raise money for the Met. But, you know, when we're raising money for the Met, what we're, we're raising money for an institution which ultimately is the place that ha that when it's its survival will guarantee the jobs of the people who work for the Met, like the orchestra and the chorus. So you know you can't lose sight of that. I think it's very important. The after the success of the At Home Gala, uh, which was an enormous success, we we um, made contributions because we wanted to see if we could continue showing it and 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 there were no rights cleared it was just like a one-time only thing so we made um, contributions to the orchestra and to the chorus of a hundred thousand dollars each so that they would um feel good about it and and about their participation and allow us to continue to to uh uh show the programs okay. um show the program the you know the the one of the things that the Met that I have to do as the head of the Met is constantly try to demonstrate to our donors and to the public that we are not um, losing our our entrepreneurial mojo, and that we have that we have to keep showing that we're doing stuff um, that shows the Met even when we can't perform in the opera house that show and we cannot perform in the opera house. You know, mm -hmm. some companies in Europe can do it on, with different health situation. Um, okay any different economic situation, we cannot. We want very much to be able to find a way going forward where we have arrangements with the orchestra and the chorus in, the, in these lean, dark months ahead where we can, where we can um, uh, 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 provide them with some kind of compensation and, and hopefully then they can actually work with us. But I think that you know, part of the problem is, is that it's a kind of a two-way street. At the time when we, we're thinking of these um, uh, programs, these recitals abroad. Um, the honestly, it, it was at a time when, when first of all, from a purely practical point of view, uh, the uh, most of these concerts were designed for one or two singers with a pianist. Um, a couple of them, a couple of them had a couple of extra players who were involved, okay. and and the. You know, from a practical point of view, I don't really believe that that, that uh, our even if we had asked our musicians, you know, to go and play, that I think, uh, I think Roberto Roberto Alexa, um, Roberto Alanya and uh, Alexander Kurzak had had uh, five string players who did arrangements or did did reorchestrations of of arias for their five instruments, mm -hmm. and you know, even if we putting aside 
contracts and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, the the um, from a purely practical point of view, the Met Orchestra couldn't have flown or f flown to France. Nobody, I, I couldn't go to France and be there to produce it. No, so, but, no, but there were ways of being able to do stuff, you know, with orchestras in their, uh, I mean, players in their own homes to be able to and and have you know professional company put that all together so that there could be, you know, everybody's listening to tracks. Everybody's, you know, sure. And and we did that with the at home gal. You know, the thing is part of part of you know you know I, I don't know how how at a certain point just doing things from tracks at home gets kind of boring. Um, and the the um, but it was uh, a way to include them. I think is where yeah, so but we have a lot of time between now and next fall, and and <laughs> there so, okay. So I have questions about that because no, but I'm, just, I'm just saying no, but I'm just saying though that that I would not give up on the idea of our of our not of our not collaborating with members okay. of the orchestra and the chorus, we have to find an economic framework where we can work with them Got it. Uh, in the months ahead. And when that happens, I'm sure we'll be able to find projects that we can do together as well. Okay. So is there no way for the opera house, your opera house to have um, enough people in there with cameras and singers on stage to do something? are you not allowed by New York state law to have, like when you say that there's only 50 people allowed in the opera house, is there a way to do any kind of chamber something with singers and, and people with professional, um, professional recorders on there? There probably could be a way of, I mean, if, if, if the number of people was less than 50, um, there could be a way of doing something in the opera house at some point. Um, the question is, you know, Artist, you know, artistically and and uh, and in terms of you know what the impact is going to be in such a project, you know whether it's worth doing or not. The the um, you know they, I I was impressed the other day. The proms had this event. Uh, was it the prom? I think it was the proms where they had where they had the musicians and chorus towards the Royal Opera. They had them spread out all over the right. all over the house. I mean that's really that's a really cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, if you know we have but we just can't do things you know unless there's some economic structure behind it right now right now and i don't want to get i don't want to get into the details too much because i think it's it's really not fair to to the orchestra or the chorus but you know if if we don't have an arrangement with them we can't do anything so so we need to find a way where we can have an arrangement with them you know uh, you know philadelphia orchestra for example is doing these things with unique they still they still have a contract that 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 they're operating under. We don't have, you know, our our okay. our economic situation right now is such that we cannot pay an entire company to do some socially distanced, tiny, tiny project that will cause us even greater financial duress. But at some point, if we have an economic structure for it, and we got a lot of time between now and next fall to figure some of these things out. Okay. Um, the other question I had was there was a video of you talking about those kinds of cuts that across the board are going to have to happen once the opera houses is, is able to open. Um, I I have to disagree with you on one thing. I truly believe in America, especially that once if there is a vaccine and we're able to take it, I think that the doors will be packed. I think that people will be running to Broadway, to opera, to live theater because we all miss it and need it so tremendously um, much. So um, 
I think that I would be surprised if your ticket sales weren't higher, at least for the first season. <laughs> so my question is, um, if, ever, if the fat has already been cut from the company and people aren't being paid and, and um, salaries have been reduced, then is that enough to not have to make so many drastic cuts to the artists and the, and the musicians coming back in the fall? Or closing the doors is such a dr um, drastic financial windfall that there's no way to come. Am I, am I asking the right question? <laughs> you know, I don't think you mean windfall. Windfall is when, you, is when, you, is when you're making lots of money, unless that's what you meant. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I guess because other, other companies that I know of or that I'm privy, privy, you know, privy to know the information of multi-million, billion dollar companies. I mean, when this happened in March, everybody just started cutting the fat everywhere, where some people were doing two or three jobs Vice, pre vice presidents were doing jobs of two or three other people um, to make sure that there was enough financial resources to come back when they could hire people again. So, you know, I, th I think the mistake that you're making, if you're making, and I don't mean to say you're making a mistake, but is that, <laughs> okay. is that, is that um, you know, we are not a for profit company. The Met, you know, the Met begins with a situation where we have a $300 million a year budget when things are, when we're performing. Okay. Half, half of that money is earned revenue. Any business, a normal business, half of that money comes from the box office. Any normal business that had a balance sheet like that mm -hmm. would not be in business. Um, so the way the Met has operated over the years is to rely upon the generosity of donors who come, who step up and, and make up the difference between the annual operating costs and the earned, and the earned revenues of the company. Okay. And that has been increasingly a pressure point in recent years for, the, for these donors who are tired of giving us these huge amounts of money beyond what they, what they normally right. would give. Sure. They, so they've been sort of been giving us emergency funding for years. And the, so, so we're now, and now this, this crisis has knocked us uh, off balance much, much more. Okay. Um, so, what we want to be able to to do is i mean i wish what you said was is true and and i would uh <laughs> um send you a bottle of champagne if you're right uh but uh to go with your whiskey yeah uh, <laughs> but the the um the i don't believe i don't believe you know you're you're young and you are you do not represent the mental uh, uh, attitude of the older audience, which compromise, which comprises a large part of our audience. Um, you know, the average age of the Met audience is 57, and the those are the prime target group for for catching this disease. And when this disease is eradicated, they are not going to. We've surveyed our audiences. We really? we've, we're in touch with them all the time, right. and they say, first of all, a lot of people don't believe the vaccine is. People say they don't even want to take a vaccine. No, uh, I wouldn't. They're, they're scared. They're scared of a vaccine that may not be safe. They want to wait and yeah. see what happens. It's not. It's going to take months, if not several years, before people really feel comfortable. I think a lot of people will be like you. I mean, you know, you think I don't want to get back in the theater? I mean, I'm dying yeah. to get back in the theater. But, yeah. but the the um, I think it's going to be slow. And and the the uh, we're not trying to you know. There are 15 different unions who, who, uh, employ, uh, whose, whose employees work at the Met. Wow. There are some unions that are very highly paid 
and there are some unions that are not so very highly paid. Um, we need kind of a, a collective sacrifice where the people who are the highest paid are willing to, to, to give up some of their money so that we can afford to come back. If the box office, when the box office returns, um, then you know money that has been cut can be restored. And this is similar, you know, the Boston Symphony recently made a deal with its players where they cut, I think, 37% or something. But it's all, but it's based upon a, a recovery program. So when okay. the box office recovers, money mm -hmm. that has been cut from people's salaries gets restored along with it. So, you know, I think there is a fair way of approaching this. I know life, you know, life is unfair. We're all miserable. Um, it's a horrible time. It's, it's, it's a hor terrible. It's yeah. a horrible time. They drink Yes. But but we have but we have to you know sort of face reality you know so I you know I I you can as I said at the beginning you can ask me any question you like and I think you have so uh, <laughs> uh, and and I'm and I'm fine with it but I but I do think that um, you know we can't you know we can't live in a fantasy world just because uh, you know because we're uh, members of a, of, a, of a union or 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 not I mean it's we have to we have to there's a reason why all these businesses, you say businesses, a lot of smart businessmen made savings and tried to protect themselves for the future. A lot of businesses have gone out of business. Yeah, they have. I yes. Mean, look at how many people lost their jobs the other day, United Airlines and American Airlines, right. like 30,000 people. You know, Unbelievable, we, yeah. We, we have not fired anybody. We have laid people, we've, we've put them on furlough. We're continuing to pay their medical coverage. Their jobs are there for them to come back to. You know, so I don't think that, and, and we, you know, probably deserve to be going to bankruptcy more than anybody because we have, we have a terrible balance sheet. But we're fighting for an art form. We're fighting for the people who believe in this art form uh, because art is so important. Opera is so important. Yes. And, and these people's jobs are so important. So mm -hmm. even though they may be angry and mad as hell at me right now because uh, we're not paying them for the time being, uh, uh, we are prepared to pay them and prepared to keep their to keep their jobs and prepared to save this company but you know it's not an easy job it's i mean it's not an easy it's not easy to accomplish and um i can live with the hate that goes with it okay i you know there was i had a question because i listen i went down the rabbit hole to at least be prepared for this and was reading a lot of stuff and <laughs> there's a lot of hurt feelings a lot of anger and I was just wondering how you, as the general director of this amazing opera house, bring back a sense of unity when the doors are able to open. Yes, up. exactly. Can That's you great. all hear me too? Yeah, yeah. I can you. you disappeared okay. for a while. Yeah, my computer decided to do an update right in the middle. Wow. Oh, oh, that was fabulous. Um, sorry, I, Peter. Like I, yeah, I, was, I, I wanted to know about the unity. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I think I think it's a very good question. I mean, I I I I don't know the answer to it right off. Uh, you know, I, I do know that individually, the people who work for this company have incredible pride uh, in their work and in their accomplishments. Yeah. And I would hope that, you know, as you hope that people will flood back into the opera house in, with enthusiasm, I would hope that when the opportunity finally comes about that we can work together again, that we'll find a way to do it. Um, I think that, um, but I don't know, I don't know for sure. Um, but I, but I certainly do, I, and I would hope that people understand, even the people who might hate me right now, will understand that I'm doing it not because, not out of spite or, 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 or to be mean. 
I'm doing what I'm doing is is ultimately to you know, with what leaders are supposed to do, which is take tough decisions and and try to look ahead and try to think about the greater good of everyone in the end of the day. And, you know, and so I would hope that some people or many people will realize that even though they're pissed off at me now, that maybe maybe later on they'll understand if the company comes back together uh, and it will that uh, what the actions I took were necessary. Okay. Thank you. No, honestly, that's what today was for. We wanted to hear what you're feeling, what your thoughts are and all of that, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of, the, the internet is, is a great thing and it's a horrible thing. And social media, <laughs> the same way that people have so many opinions right now. And I feel like your voice, like your, your campaign, the voice must be heard. And I feel like we weren't hearing your voice and, and your thoughts. So thank you for saying what you just said, because I think that clarifies a lot of, of how hard you've been working and where you stand right now in all of this. And it, it can't be an easy job. No, not, not especially dealing <laughs> with what, I mean, from what we all understand, especially with, you said, how many unions? 15 unions. Right. Um, what happens, I mean, this is a very naive question because I don't understand the whole thing with unions. What happens if the unions say, we're not doing that, we're not negotiating with you? What happens? I mean, is there, if the unions don't figure out, and I want to say both sides don't figure out how to come together and get along and figure out what's best for everyone for this business to move forward and for this wonderful opera house to keep its doors open, how, I mean, how do you make that happen? Well, you know, in the end of the day, um, if people don't want to work together, it's very hard to, to make them work together. The, you know, unions have an obligation when contracts expire to negotiate. Um, and historically, uh, in most cases, negotiations end sometimes with, after a long bitter period or not, they yeah. end with, a, with an agreement. Or, or if, and if they don't, then the business ceases to exist. Um, so, you know, I believe though that that the people who work at the Met believe in the company and believe in the art form, and ultimately will understand that we all have to make a sacrifice for this business to continue, and for us to be able to continue to produce great opera on our stage. Yeah, absolutely. So, I have a question. You, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I have a question completely because I don't want to harp on unions all day. Um, Mr. Trump has, President Trump has changed the visa laws radically in, in the last year. How is that affecting you at the Met now? Oh, <laughs> Peter needs a drink for that too. He was like, I gotta go. I'm gonna finish my I, vodka. The, I uh, talk to these the, ladies. Um, you know, I, my understanding of the visa, you know, it's not just in the last year, it's for, for several years now, the, the uh, visa application process has become increasingly difficult and it makes it our, it makes our life much harder. It, 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 it certainly harms our ability to be flexible in terms of bringing in singers at the last moment. It has changed. I mean, it, it, it is responsible. The visa policies of the government are responsible for a lowering in the quality of the art form because artists who could previously be able to come in at the last minute can't. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just another hurdle that we have to work around. Um, Do you envision the Met becoming more an, an American-centric opera house because out of necessity? 
Or well, I think, you know, we've always prided ourselves in having the greatest singers in the world on our stage. And mm -hmm. we want to continue to do that as uh, to the extent that we, you know, can. And so far, we've been able to do that. Of course, you know, if you have a situation where, uh, where you have a health pandemic, which say, bifurcates uh, the world, you know, then things are different. And at one point, you know, I was imagining a situation where before I realized that we couldn't open until, until, until uh, there is a real cure that would affect not only America, but Europe as well. But I was imagining a scenario where European singers wouldn't be able to get into America and we would have to basically go with all American cast. But there are lots of great American singers, as we know. So, right. uh, yeah. so uh, we're okay with that. Yep. If there is not a vaccine, is there any way that we could figure out a way to have a ton of testing like they're doing in Europe for us to feel a little bit more comfortable coming to work? Well, you know, the testing that's being done in Europe is, you know, it's, it's done on a very, very, you know, they're, they're doing like, they don't have no company that is doing, I shouldn't say that because I guess they're doing it in Vienna. Um, the, I think it's very difficult in America given this, and we're not on our own. You know, the, gov the governments in Europe that are, that are allowing opera companies to perform with testing are running these companies, basically. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the Minister of Culture in Germany is telling the intendants of the opera companies what to do. Okay. We don't have anything like that system here. Um, you know, we're in a situation, we're in the same boat with Broadway and with all the other performing arts companies. And, you know, the government, the local government is not going to allow us to, to do it. So, you know, even if we could figure out a way, and obviously there are ways of having rapid testing. Obviously you don't want, to, you don't want the rapid testing the White House uses because it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, True. The, no. but the, um, you know, I, I, I think it's not practical really in the end of the day. Okay. Um, and, and, and there's no, you know, I can sit around thinking about all kinds of things like, you know, uh, touchless doors and toilets that you don't have to touch and, and all the kinds of things that people would like to have in in a future where they don't we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a germophobic society nobody wants to ever touch anything ever again right. but the fact of the matter is you know we have to think beyond that in a way we have to think we really okay. do have to rely upon the end of this disease we okay. have to rely upon the vaccine working eventually and that is the way forward. You know, otherwise, I mean, look at what's happening in Europe right now. As Sandra was saying at the beginning of the conversation, you know, you'd, every day, you know, one city shuts down, another city opens up. Or yeah. more, we're more. Well, I'm in Madrid, which is a partial lockdown. I mean, you know, we are. Yeah. Right, exactly. I, I've been reading about it. You know, I'm the, that recital we did with Joyce DiDonato a few weeks ago yeah. started in Barcelona, then moved to Antwerp, and then moved to Bochum, Germany, all in two weeks because <laughs> right. we, each, we were like one, one, one step ahead of the virus. Right, so, right uh, exactly. And that's you know. why ours has been postponed with Piotr. You know, it's, it, it's the getting around the country. I mean, we're, we're, we live in Canada, my husband and I, and trying to negotiate when we're going home and have to quarantine for two weeks and then going back. And it's, it's a whole nightmare. But the good thing, having had the test here, I've had two tests, one in Barcelona and one here in Madrid. And, and I have to apologize to you, Peter, because I couldn't do the at-home gala, but I couldn't say it then because I had COVID. Oh, my God. You did. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't know what kind of stigma was going to be attached to it. Right. Uh, but now I couldn't, get a, I couldn't get a COVID test in Canada because my 
fever was 0.1 degree too low, you had to have a 100 degree fever and I was 99.9. But now my, my test here, my blood test revealed that I 100% had it. And I have 100% strong antibodies. So well, that's great, go. though. It's great that you that you got through it, and it didn't yeah. affect your lungs or anything. Right. No, I was, you know, I was one of the few, the the, the lucky people. But um, so I know it's it's a real disease, and I know that the testing does work, and it's not a false sense of security by any means. But it allows us here in Europe right now to get back for who knows how long. But do you see, is there any kind well, of- I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm very excited that we have a makeup date of January 23 for that. Yeah, me Piotr is, I just saw Piotr in Barcelona and he is beyond excited. We are so ready for it. And, you know, the audiences, I think are all gonna be loving this, the, the recital that we put together. It's, it's pretty, it's some new music for Piotr too. So it's, it's gonna be fun. That's so cool. But do you envision any kind of, when, when you, singers can get back into the Met. Can you do any kind of online concerts from the Met stage possibly with a reduced orchestra or reduced chorus or something like that? Or is that not reasonable or feasible right now? Well, I think, I think when we do, are able to really get back into the Met, we're gonna be able to do real performances again. And uh, you know, certainly the type of online stuff that we've been doing is, is really a Band-Aid. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't artistically, I mean, artistically they're wonderful performances, but it's it's not the it's, same. It's economic. It's it's not the same, and economically, it's it's doesn't do the doesn't replace what we're all in this art form to do, which is to perform together in the same place with with each other and with an audience. Um, that's what makes the performing arts the performing arts, and that's what we should never forget. The visceral thrill of of, of a live orchestra, of a, of a live voice, of live performance. It you can't replace it, and and I agree completely, but maybe it's better than, what about a mini Met? I remember that, I remember from years ago when I was, you know, starting out at the Met, they were talking about taking down Rosh Park next door and making a mini Met, so did well, you know, well, well, we've been trying to think of ways to do some, you know, smaller uh, chamber-sized operas in, in different venues. In fact, one of the projects that we had that was canceled this past uh, uh, spring was a performance of Missy Mazzoli's uh, Breaking the Waves. Right. Unique was going to conduct with a chamber-sized group from the Met at BAM uh, in a production that was a co-production of BAM and the Scottish Opera and the Edinburgh Festival. So, you know, we're, we're always looking for those kind of, you know, collaborations where we can, where we can do things outside of the Met building and we'll continue to look for well, those opportunities. Nice. But all that's, all, that's, all that's going to be possible <laughs> once again when we're beyond this wretched disease. Oh, I know. I know. Can I ask one more hard question and then you can be like, okay. ever want to talk to Carrie Alcama again? <laughs> go, go, go ahead. Okay. It, is, there any, um, is there any regret from not charging a fee to watch any of the Met HD, like even if it was $2 or something like that? Because I, I don't know the logistics of why that didn't happen, but was there, what was the thought process of giving that for free instead of, are you tired of that question of, has everybody asked you that? <laughs> no, 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 not so many people have asked me that. The, uh, um, you're talking about the nightly streams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the reasoning behind that was that we thought by the 
the, diff the difference between offering these programs immediately, the minute we shut down, literally, we started offering these programs. Right. And we started offering them as kind of cultural relief. Um, you know, we were coming to the rescue of people who were stuck in their homes and offering them the Metropolitan Opera uh, in a way that, you know, was, was thrilling and surprising for them. And they responded in, 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 with such gratitude. You know, we, as a result of, of that, um, of doing it that way, not charge it and not, you know, I remember having discussions with our marketing people saying, I don't want people to have to log on and give you a life story. I want them to just sign their name and be able to get the goddamn thing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the diff and it made a huge difference because people were so grateful initially. Now it's, it's a more, much more modest number because we've been doing it for, for, for months sure. now. But yeah. initially, hundreds of thousands of people were tuning in every night. Right. And, and we, within a matter of three or four months, had 30,000 new donors to the Met and 150,000 new names in our database. None right. of that would have happened if we had charged for it. And, wow. and, and charging a couple of bucks, we, we raised more money from donors who were so grateful that the Met did this by, by not telling them they had to pay for it than we would have if we had charged. I'm convinced of that. So okay. I, I, I believe it was the right move. And I, I think it really strengthened the Mets uh, position uh, uh, locally and internationally. Uh, you know, we have, a, we have a, there's no company like the Met in the world that has the global fan base that we have. And, uh, and, and I think ironically, we've enhanced that even during the pandemic. Okay. Problem. Do you, how do you see future, the a future of opera going forward? Do you see it having to change? Will it change? Do you think it'll ever be back the way it was? I, 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 well, I don't think opera will ever be back the way it was, even if there hadn't been a pandemic. I think it's, it's changing all the time. I think that, uh, you know, the positive signs for opera are, are, are great in the sense that there's so much uh, creativity in, in new composition. There are so many gifted artists who are who understand that opera is is can only be approached successfully today as a complete art form, both uh, theatrically as well as musically. Um, I think opera companies are more endangered than the art form of opera itself. I think that uh, big opera companies have to figure out uh, how to avoid becoming dinosaurs, and that's you know something we all have to work together to to achieve. Um, but you know, I think that people are are less patient today than they were years ago, and and uh, although maybe the COVID crisis has taught people to be more patient, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, it taught me to drink more. <laughs> to drink more. Me too. Me too. Uh, when we when we finish this call, I'm gonna go have several. The uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. The the uh, you blondes grilled you. Sorry. The, it's a, it's okay. The I'm kidding. The uh, um. But I, th I think that you know one of the things that you know we're we're very aware of and mindful of is is audiences you know want to have um, uh, maybe shorter experiences at the opera. You know we've announced mm -hmm. in, even in that twenty one twenty two season we've announced cutting some operas. Uh, I don't think there is any baroque opera that's ever written that shouldn't be cut. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I uh, sorry about that. Rossini and Donizetti too. I will say. I, but, and I see them and I can say that too. 
the uh, but I think I think that you know we're 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 starting. We're going to have more curtains at, uh, at an earlier starting time of seven p.m. than seven thirty or eight. I think people want to go out earlier and go home earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're trimming uh, intermissions. Uh, we're, we're removing the intermission from these uh, between acts two and three of our butterfly production. Uh, we're um, we're presenting Boris in that twenty one twenty two season in the original two hour and one quarter version uh, without any intermission. So it's kind of like a, a, a wow. unreal, like a film almost. Uh, wow. There's, you know, there, I, th I think, I think we have to work to make opera shorter, not longer, you know, and for decades, the opposite was happening. Thanks to musicologists and uh, conductors and, you know, who felt that they were the guardians of composers, uh, you know, every bit of, of, of composition of every bit of score of every Baroque opera was was found in every composer's relative's closet and all glued back together again to create operas that were longer than they ever were meant to be. Oh, yeah. And uh, just in the same way when we produce, there's no Shakespeare company in the world that I know of, uh, maybe there, there must be some somewhere, but who when they produce Hamlet, they produce Hamlet in two hours or two and a half hours. They don't produce it in the four and a half hours that it would be if you used every single word that Shakespeare wrote. So no. you know, we have to we have to think about the modern world in which we live, and make opera adapt to that world. I do find attention spans are, are shortened, especially now with all the social media and because of the pandemic, people just are so scattered. And I think, why not? Let's try it. But Carrie, do you have anything else to say? Or no, can no. we ask you a few quick rapid fire questions? Is that okay, Peter? I know if we've gone a, over. If there's anything left in my brain at this point, yes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, who is your favorite non-living diva? My favorite non-living diva, I'd have to say Maria Callas. Okay. Do you have a number two? Uh, Renata Tavaldi. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, what is one thing that most people do not know about you? I think everybody knows everything about me. <laughs> what thing? No, nobody. Uh, what, say, re repeat that question. Sorry, I'm not forgetting What's this. What's one thing that most people do not know about you? Uh, that I ride my bicycle around Central Park a couple times a week. Cool. Oh, I love Good that. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe yourself in three words? Um, beleaguered but unbowed. <laughs> beleaguered but unbowed. And on that note, what is your favorite curse word in any language? Oh. <laughs> Carrie has to ask this one. I, um, come on. Scheisskopf. Scheisskopf. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Do you have any hobbies? Do you have any free time? I mean, do you have free time to have hobbies? I, have, I really have no free time. I, I love playing tennis. Mm. Okay. And uh, I've started, when the pandemic began, I started reading War and Peace. <laughs> Did you finish? Yeah, right? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, oh, oh wow. my gosh. Good for right. trying. And what, Carrie, do you want to ask anymore? Yeah, what did you and Carrie do to just, I mean, you guys, it was New York City, you all were locked down. Did you stay in the city or were you able to get out? We stayed almost the entire time in the city. We rented wow. a house for a couple of weeks in in uh, the Berkshires okay. uh, in July, but otherwise we've been here. And and we spent uh, uh, five or six days out in Fire Island. 
Trees. Nice. Uh, okay. Oh, how beautiful. And range the place. Last they have a lot of deer wandering around like zombies. Oh. Have you ever been to Fire Island? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have, have you seen the zombie deer? Yes. I have not. No, I have not seen that. It's really weird. The okay. deer just stand there looking at you. And yeah. It's a very strange yeah. place. <laughs> we live in the forest too. And the last question we always ask everyone last question if Heaven exists, what would you like to, to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? <laughs> We've had uh, every answer. Susan Graham's was really good. <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say yes to this? <laughs> <laughs> what, say, give me that one again. Okay. What do I, if heaven Terry? exists, what do you want to hear God say as you walk through the pearly gates? It's over. It's over. Oh. You can go drink your vodka now. <laughs> oh, that makes me want to give you a hug. Thank you for oh, what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for keeping trying to keep this company alive and well. And yes. I mean, even with all these questions, we still love you and still support you and want want this just as badly as you. So thank well, you. I, I listen, I, I appreciate it. And I know how much you both of you are committed to 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 opera and to your art and and to the Met. I mean, I was a young artist there. It's it's my I grew up there. It's my home. My 25 years you know so i i thank you for keeping it alive and keeping it open and and hopefully we will see you next season yeah we'll be there all of us all right. and i hope you don't feel like we put you on the spot uh only slightly <laughs> and, sandra, and it wasn't from you sandra it was from me so you're all right <laughs> <laughs> all right peter well, well thank no, you so much I, well, I i enjoyed it and i i really did and i i um where are you with your whiskey? The beautiful Me? view you have. Oh, you know, I we were living in downtown Nashville because my husband has a, a right, I call it a normal job. Um, and then we said, once we saw what was going on, I said, we need to get out of here. And our little nest egg that we were saving to buy downtown Na Nashville turned into buying a lake house. So what you see behind me are the trees and on the other side of those trees is a lake. So oh, in, in, but in, in Tennessee? Yes, right outside of Nashville. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. That's beautiful. You know, Sandra, Carrie Lynn now has a Canadian passport. That's one of the things she did over the summer was to uh, claim her Canadian citizenship. Wonderful. Thank God. So well, that you know, can hopefully facilitate her traveling around. Good it's, for her. it's a good passport to have because it's, it's really helped me get over here to Europe. Right, How many exactly. American artists have not been able to fly over here to Europe? So, yeah, I know. Well, please give I, her a big hug and kiss yeah, from us. Yeah, please give both. her our love. Definitely. And thank you again, Peter. It was really lovely. Thank okay, you. Thanks, thanks a lot. Take care. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye, Tom. Bye. 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 Bye.